imagine going to a grocery store or buying food items that you have no idea what is the ingredients within it. You don't know how much saturated fat there is, how much cholesterol there is, how much protein, how much carbs, how much sugar. There was a time and place when we used to buy food without food labels until that kind of became the norm and got mandated. Effectively, the, the same principle applies with software. How can you possibly blindly use software in your environment that you're running on your machines, your servers, pushing your critical application and data through that you don't understand what's within it? Hi, welcome to Forbes India's The Daily Tech Conversation, where we bring you insights from tech entrepreneurs, CXOs, and investors from around the world whose work has a bearing on India. I'm Hari Arakali, and in this episode, Varun Badhwar, Indian-born serial entrepreneur in Silicon Valley, talks about his latest venture, Endor Labs, that has just come out of stealth mode, announcing a $25 million seed funding round to commercialize a software product aimed at mitigating the risks involved in borrowing software components from the internet, a growing trend. Investors include Lightspeed Venture Partners, Dell Technologies Capital, Sierra Ventures, and CEOs and executives from Microsoft, Zoom, Zscaler, Palo Alto Networks, and Snowflake. With the new funding, Varun is also looking to expand his team in India. Varun, welcome to this podcast. Thank you so much for making time. And just to get us started, I I know in the world of software security and cloud security infrastructure, you and your team are probably quite well known in Silicon Valley through your previous work as well. For the general listeners and as well as listeners in India, maybe you could give us a a snapshot of your close to two decades career that brought you to the beginnings of Endor Labs and we'll go from there. Sure, Hari, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, You know, my uh, kind of, like you said, my experience dates back about uh, 16, 18 years now in in cybersecurity. But, you know, I grew up in, uh, I was born in Delhi, grew up in Dehradun, did my schooling there moved to the US and did my undergrad in computer science, but you know, just didn't enjoy being a software engineer, although I loved being on the business side of technology. Uh, you know, long story short, I found my way in as my first job being a cybersecurity consultant at KPMG, and thereafter joined uh, Salesforce.com in its infancy days when there was about a thousand employees in the company back in 2006, 2007. You know, having spent four years there, I really got the advantage of being in cloud security quite early and, you know, realized that there was a lot of learnings that I had in that process that that I wanted to take and, and really help create new disruptive technologies with. And so starting in 2010, I have been building cybersecurity companies as an entrepreneur and as a founder, um, you know, started a company called CypherCloud which was in the SaaS security space. And then in 2015, started a company called Rudlock, which was acquired by Palo Alto Networks in 2018, uh, where I then went on to lead as GM of the business, (coughs) an area called Prisma Cloud, which is today the market leader in cloud security. Did that for about three years and started seeing a new problem surfacing front and center across the entire industry around what is now considered software supply chain security, but really the idea being 
you know, as part of your application development, you use so many different components that your developers don't actually build themselves, but borrow from various parts of the internet. And we don't really understand a whole lot of how to manage the security risks and the operational risks that come with that. And that's kind of what led me to starting out Endor Labs just about a year ago. And thrilled to share today that just last week, uh, we launched the company out of stealth mode and announced uh, 25 million in seed financing, plus the launch of the company and product, which uh, I look forward to talking to you about more. Excellent. Just for folks who might be curious, since you said you were born in Delhi and uh, went to school in Dehradun, briefly, if you want to talk about it, uh, did you go to the US by yourself? Did your parents move there? How did that happen? Yeah, so I'm born into an army fa army family. My dad was in the Indian Army. And um, so, you know, very, very kind of classic military discipline, uh, punctuality, schedule, uh, respect, uh, and all of that in kind of growing up. But uh, my parents did not move. They're still based very much in Dehradun. Uh, so, but, you know, I had a number of family members and uncles in the U.S. And so, you know, my parents' dream was always that I do my, uh, you know, uh, my college education in the United States. So you can almost think of it as it was a written plan for me and my future that they had been working on for many, many years. So I moved here by myself. Uh, my sister and my older brother were already in the U.S. at that point. So they were my support system, along with my uncles and aunts and cousins. Uh, but yeah, my parents are very much still rooted in Dardun. Okay, and definitely can relate to the idea of you know trying to fulfill parents' dreams. Certainly our generation was very much like that, I guess. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, let's dive right into uh, your work today. Give us a brief description of Endor Labs. Um, you already spoke briefly about the context of why you've started it. Uh, maybe you can talk about what's at the heart of the company today. Sure. Yes. Yeah. So as I was saying, Hari, you know, it, it's fascinating to watch, but today 80 to 90% of modern application code is not code that developers write themselves, but it's code that they borrow and reuse from various parts of the internet. And there's just been this huge surge in open source software, people sharing their code. Really, the idea being the fastest way to innovation is don't recreate the wheel every single time. And so, as I was mentioning to you earlier, like there is this just hot emerging area of software supply chain, because if you think about it, your applications are composed of hundreds of thousands of developers' different work that you don't know a lot more about. You don't know about their motivations. You don't know about their security. You don't know about their quality of the code that they write. And so to us, you know, this whole notion of dependency lifecycle management, or in other words, open source software lifecycle management is foundational to supply chain security. And it's not just us that think about it this way. You know, in fact, as of like about a couple of years ago, the U.S. White House and the U.S. government has now called open source software security a national security issue. We have seen nation state actors leverage open source, leverage software supply chain as a way to attack at massive scale companies globally. And so, in fact, the government here in the U.S. has been pushing for regulations and frameworks and guidance on open source software security. In fact, most recently, as of about a month back in the U.S. Senate, a bill was introduced that was a bipartisan bill by both Democrats and Republicans, which, as you know, in India, imagine seeing Congress and the BJP coming together 
and pushing a bill, a very rare thing to happen. Mm. But, you know, we've seen that happen here all around kind of software and open source software security. And, you know, the reason for this, if you think about it, is developers are gaining all of the speed and time to market and differentiation by leveraging this code that's out there in the open source ecosystem. So it's actually got top line impact for businesses. It's got measurable impact to revenue and competitiveness, but the risks of security and operational issues are so high that, you know, this is kind of why this is so front and center today. And so the idea behind the Endor Labs capabilities and solutions that we are now launching into market is to help companies maximize software reuse. So really promote your developers, not deter them from using open source software, but do it in a manner where you have the right governance and guardrails in place, such that as an organization, you can actually help your developers make informed decisions, give them better metrics and data on the open source software that they want to consider and potentially use in their environments, as well as help them secure and maintain that software once it comes in to your application estate. Because by doing so, we can actually make sure that this entire software supply chain is secure. We can make sure that the developers focus on innovation and not on getting drowned in tens of thousands of security alerts that traditional tools give them around this open source software usage and actually meaningfully improve the security posture for the enterprise. All right. So yeah, so tell us about uh, the first product that you're now bringing to market. Sure. So, you know, the product is called Dependency Lifecycle Management. And as I said, you know, the, the, there's really three main components to that. The first one is how do we help developers whose best friend is Google, where they're typically coming in on an average morning because a product manager has told them that they need to build some new features. And they're looking around to see where do we start? What can we reuse? Giving them a number of signals on the different open source packages and dependencies that they're considering, on the risk of it, how well maintained the libraries are, how secure is the code that's written, how active is the community that supports this open source software, and ultimately answer simple question, that is, what is the risk of me introducing this open source dependency into my company, into my application? So that really helps as kind of the front gate to your house to make sure that the people that are walking in are secure and well-intentioned. Once you kind of do that, you know, and, and just to give you an appreciation of how large this sprawl of open source software is, in our assessment, you know, an average company of 10,000 employees has over 2 million different components from the internet. Just think of that for a moment. 2 million different components that have been built by millions of software developers that you've never met, you have never seen, and you know nothing about, right? And so as you think about using this code in your applications, how do you keep it secure? How do you keep it well-maintained is a big area of focus for us. And lastly, you know, unlike traditional tools that have tried to tackle this problem that are riddled with false positives, the technology underlying that we have built is built in a manner that we not just know which open source software dependencies you're using, but we actually precisely know how your developers are using those different components in your particular application and can reduce those security alerts that traditional tools give by over 
And last but not the least, for a developer, if you talk to them, one of the hardest things to do and least fruitful, least productive is how to go update this software constantly. Again, millions of these packages in use in your company. Imagine just the amount of time it takes developers to keep these up to date and without a lot of context. So we can really help solve that problem and make developers more productive by pinpointing for them the exact and easiest paths to keep all of the software up to date, flag to them when some of these software components are no longer useful to them, and basically keep everything very tight and well-maintained in their dependency graph. Okay. Um, I, I, I get the uh, general sense of uh, what you're saying. Uh, again, for a general listener, it might help if you could give us a brief explanation of what you mean by dependency lifecycle management. I mean, I get the sense that sure. software applications are dependent on a whole bunch of components that come from elsewhere, basically via the internet, and then you yes. need to be able to make sure that they are safe to use over the life of that software application. Correct, Harry. So, so the way this works, so just to give you, just like, let's break this problem down. Um, let's say today a developer wants to put a new, um, you know, a new table in their UI of their application. The first thing they do is they look on GitHub to see who else has done it and how they've done it. Let's say they find a component or like what the, the industry terminology is, is a dependency because it's something you will depend on that you didn't write. So let's say you find a dependency or a package that somebody has written that built a similar table. You download it, okay? You don't know who the person or set of people behind this are. You don't know what countries they're located in. You don't know if you can trust their code. You don't know what companies they work for. Right? So you have no semblance of risk association with these people. You have no idea how good the quality of code is because in the few minutes you take to determine if you're going to use this open source software dependency or not, you know, you just can't tell all the gory details or the history or the intentions of these people. Second of all, as a developer, you think you're bringing in this one dependency. On average, what is staggering to figure out is on average, each one of those dependencies depends on 77 other dependencies of other open source software. So if you just think about this sprawl, you thought you were bringing in one thing. It brought 78 different components built by entirely different people, managed very differently. And each time you bring in another one, another one, you're basically adding 78 things. And if you just think about this over time, this is kind of where I was describing. You end up with millions of components of code snippets or dependencies built by people you know nothing about, but the, that you rely on heavily for the success of your application. And we are trying to get people the data, the telemetry, and the understanding to say, how good is this code? Can I rely on it? Can I trust the people? Can I trust the code? Will it continue to be maintained for my needs or not? Such that as a developer, I can make my decision to use it or not based on that data, based on that context. So hopefully that makes sense already. Okay. Again, give us a sort of simple understanding of how your product actually works. What are the kinds of things it will look for and, and sure. how will it potentially remedy it or help a developer remedy it? Yeah, so the way it works is it connects into the developer's um, software code repository, right? So most times people are 
uh, storing their code in GitHub or in GitLab. And typically a developer is interacting with that code using a development environment like a VS code or an IntelliJ, uh, which is where they're writing the code. So Endor Labs actually plugs into all of these environments. And we're basically looking at and assessing what is a developer wanting to use. So let's say they're trying to use a new um, uh, component or, or dependency that is in the open source ecosystem that, that is a table for their UI, right? It actually sets up a table in their UI. Um, so what we will do is we will evaluate first and foremost, everything we possibly can find out about that particular dependency. Who are the people? Do these people have a long track record of shipping software? Are they actively supporting this piece of code? Uh, what is the quality of that code? Is it well-maintained and is it actually secure or are there any known security problems or vulnerabilities in that code, right? So we evaluate like 40 to 50 different signals and use machine learning to basically correlate that information and give a semblance of risk to the developer. So let's say, you know, we give those signals and then obviously the developer may choose to still proceed with that or they may find that the issues are too severe where they go look for an alternative. If they look for an alternative, great, we'll do the same thing again. If they choose to continue with this, then just like with software, there's a life cycle to this. Let's say you start using it today. Six months from now, maybe there's a new problem introduced, right? We will continue to track how you're using this component that you downloaded in your code. We will continue to track new updates that the developers in the open source ecosystem are pushing to it. And we will continue to make recommendations to the customer that sets them up for success, meaning the lowest likelihood of risk and the highest likelihood of having secure performant code. That determination, we keep continuing to help them make. Sure. If it makes sense for them to update to the latest version, we recommend that. If we're finding that the latest uh, version of software has potential problems, we will kind of flag that for them as well. But the whole idea is that developers can focus on what they do best, bringing innovation and new features to market, using these dependencies of the internet and letting us manage all of the risks that come with these and flagging to them actions that are highly prioritized in nature and, and very contextual in nature. Okay. Uh, any early well-known customers that you're allowed to talk about? You know, we, we just, as I mentioned, launched out of Stealth about a week ago. We are working with, uh, in, in the process of the last year of developing the company and the product, we've engaged with over 75 companies that have given us feedback and served as various stages of design partnerships. You know, today we are in pilots with everything from companies with 200 developers to Fortune 500 companies, uh, ranging from tech companies to large banks and financial services companies that are well-known household names. I am not at a place where I can share uh, the, the names of those companies, but I can say that we're pretty um, you know, pretty content with the level of engagement that we have got and pretty pleased with the uh, feedback and engagement that we're getting from these types of uh, customers. All right. I, I get that uh, it, it's a young company and you've just come out of stealth mode. But again, in simple terms, uh, any innovations that you've already brought to market uh, that you're particularly proud of? Yeah, so, so there's really three main things as part of our secret sauce in our technology. You know, the first is kind of what I call an inside-out analysis. As, as I was mentioning to you earlier, there are millions of different components that an application is constituted of. And most times, 
developers struggle to even understand how all of those pieces kind of come together at the end and what the implications of changing X to Y might be. Um, and so we have built this very detailed dependency graph. And in order to build that dependency graph, we had to use some very leading uh, kind of technology and computer science approaches that have been studied in the academic world for decades, but really haven't been applied at scale in production uh, use cases. And so our ability to take that academia research, hiring you know, a third of our engineering team being PhDs and world-renowned experts on this problem who spent decades in academia studying this to come implement this for us has allowed us to build this inside-out visibility of that dependency graph that I described that is extremely detailed, not just tracking which open source packages you use, but down to the level of line of code interaction between all of those things. The reason that's helpful is it can, can cut down 80 to 90% of security alerts that traditional tools give you if they were trying to perform that same assessment. So you can literally come down and say, we can remove nine out of the 10 or eight out of the 10 alerts you're getting from other tools and let you focus on things that matter versus spending hundreds of thousands of alerts chasing down um, security alerts that really don't even apply to you. So there's a huge developer productivity improvement by doing that. The second part of the innovation is really that analytics that I described to you earlier of school risk scoring. You know, in the US, kind of for, for consumers, you could never go to a bank and get a loan unless you had a credit score and a credit report and a credit history where people knew enough about your credibility, right? We're trying to take those same principles and apply them to open source software. Because if you think about it, open source software basically states you're implicitly trusting somebody that you've never met, don't know anything about, and now they're part of your critical application. And we're trying to bring more data into that process by getting more signals, more information, collecting all of that, using machine learning to apply that to really tell you and answer a simple question. What risk am I introducing by using this stranger's piece of software that I found on the internet that seems to be able to help me move faster in my day-to-day -day job? So that's kind of the second part. The third part, and the last part of this, I would characterize as really inventory, right? Because when you take the first two things I described to you and we put it together, the level of information and detail that you can get helps you pinpoint issues within minutes. So I'll give you an example. Uh, last winter, around December of last year, there was a massive security incident that was probably will be for decades talked about and referenced, which was called a log4j. Log4j was an open source package that literally 60 to 70% of the underlying internet core applications depended on that had a massive vulnerability. And there was a report that recently was introduced by the US government, the Department of Homeland Security, that talked about like how did we do as an industry dealing with this incident? And they gave a particular example where one organization of the US government, it took 33,000 hours, soak that in, 33,000 hours for them to just deal with figuring out where Log4j was being used in their environment. And so this last piece 
is really about taking those thousands of hours or tens of thousands of hours of work and being able to allow you to do that same task within minutes or hours. Um, so that's what I would characterize as the core value problem. Okay. Given the complexity of these problems, I would imagine straight off the gate, your product must be offering a fair degree of automation. So maybe you can talk about how you've used AI, machine learning, and uh, and generally in terms of automation, what's the direction you're headed and what can be automated and what currently still needs human intervention and so on? Great question, right? And obviously automation and AI ML aren't, aren't perfect, but they kind of, as, as I call it, kind of it's machine assisted and, and it is orders of magnitude more efficient than humans intervening. Let me give you a real example of what I faced when I was at Palo Alto Networks, right? So I, I mentioned to you, I was part GM of this business. There was 400 engineers in that business. And when we tried to kind of scan our open source software for vulnerabilities, we got 68,000 alerts back from these tools, right? So just, just think of that like map for a second of practically the amount of vulnerabilities per developer if you wanted to go investigate. And even if, simply put, it took one hour for each vulnerability to be investigated manually by a developer to say, does it really impact me? If so, where in my code? And I'm being, I'm being very conservative when I say one hour, normally several hours per vulnerability, but just back of the napkin map, that's 68,000 hours of time of developers to evaluate those issues that were flagged with our usage of open source software. Now, if I can automate that, and we know we can actually based on statistics and research of what we're working on, we can remove 80% to 90% of that manual intervention work. So right off the bat, I can save tens of thousands of hours each year for an engineering organization with this capability, right? And so that is a massive, massive kind of time saving for developers because unfortunately the way the security world works today, developers are guilty until proven innocent when security tools are run. And we think that's very unfair because just because a tool reported some issues, now the developer has to manually do all of this intervention and investigation to come back and only tell you in the security team that, look, here's my evidence that this doesn't impact me. And so we're automating the most part of that. So that's one. The other part is in, in a number of organizations that we surveyed and interviewed and, and actually faced this firsthand, typically the process says, if you want to use a new open source software that hasn't been used in the company before, is not approved, you file a ticket, you cannot use it, till somebody in the security team will pick it up and review it. Now, there's several problems with that. When we kind of ask the question of how long does that review process take? On average, a developer waits anywhere from four to six weeks to even get approval to move forward with that particular uh, dependency. So that is massive waste of productivity and time, of waiting time. The second is when we looked at the efficacy of what that security team would even review, it's a point in time review. But remember, software is constantly changing. So even though somebody might take all of that time and effort and spend several hours, the problem was that one, they're looking at only one or two signals of a problem. They just don't have more signals and data 
to make more of risk management decisions on. The second is that's a single point in time decision. In a month, when that particular open source software is updated to a newer version, nobody ever goes back and looks at it. You just don't have the time to do it. So, you know, there's there's efficiency and improvement in developer time. There's faster time to market with using all of this open source software to drive innovation. There is reducing the burden of work that's very laborious for security teams to manually do. And there's the improving the security posture because a machine can do this in a continuous manner, do it at scale and much more effectively over time. All right. And I, I was just thinking that these days, uh, you know, IT experts are talking about this concept of uh, the so-called citizen developer. And from what I see, it looks like low code and no code is going to become more popular and so on. So is that an area in which your product would be uh, relevant, given that more and more people who don't really understand the underlying IT would kind of start using code and building their own applications and so on? Yes, look, the, the, all of these worlds collide in the right in the same place, right? Why are people able to do that? Why are we seeing so much developer productivity gains today than they did before? Are developers now just smarter and can write code faster? No. It's ultimately that there's a lot more technology that is available for them to reuse, right? So uh, the example I gave you, an average application on the modern day, 80 to 90% of the code measured by lines of code is code you didn't actually write, but you kind of compile together from various parts of the internet, right? Layer on top of that, the ability to do that in a more automated fashion. Layer on top of that, the ability to have programming languages that are more abstracted and simpler but fundamentally, this will all only work if we can maximize code reuse. If every person doesn't have to go figure out soup to nuts how to build an application. For example, today, if you want to go build authentication, there are packages and open source dependencies to do that. You want to do logging, there's dependencies to do that. You want to connect your application to another application. Chances are somebody's already built it and shared it on GitHub. Uh, and so I think, you know, this This is all directionally aligning to the same exact philosophy, which is we want to maximize software reuse, but we want to make sure that this is done in the right way, where governance is there, security measures are there, quality measures are there, such that these the applications are actually secure and performant. Hmm. If you look at sort of the uh, high level picture of some of the biggest trends in cloud infrastructure and related security, uh, as you see it. In that context, can you talk about sort of the, the vision for Endor Labs? I mean, five years down the line, what is the kind of company sure. you think it will be? Yeah, and Hari, it's important to kind of look back and, and, and just maybe revisit a little bit of my career decisions of the companies I've built starting in 2010. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, when we started CypherCloud, people were just starting to use SaaS applications. And the mindset most companies had is I will never take my customer data and use a SaaS platform. I will never use email in the cloud, right? As an enterprise, I would always have my exchange servers. I would certainly never have my financial data for my company and my revenue forecast in the cloud. And what we had predicted back then was that everybody would be using moving mission critical data eventually to the cloud because you just can't escape the value proposition of it. And we built Kind of products around that that were very successful. And then in 2015, when we started Redlock, we said the paradigm is people will no longer want to own their data centers. It just doesn't make sense. 
financially and from a time to market perspective on speed and innovation, people will want to use more and more of the economies of scale that the cloud providers like AWS and Google provide. And we bet on that. And, you know, that bet was a great success. And today, you know, with Endor Labs, we're betting that people will use more and more open source software in their day-to-day lives. And that will create a level of complexity and security risk that will need to be managed and measured more effectively. And that's exactly what Endor Labs does. Now, we are starting with kind of what we believe is foundational to software supply chain security, which is dependency lifecycle management and open source governance. And you know where the world is moving with that is uh, the analogy I would give you is like, let's, let's look at the current state and then let's talk about what world would be five years from today. The current state is when you buy commercial software from any vendor, the vendor gives you a license, they give you a binary to install, but you have no idea what components they have within it. Like take, for example, Microsoft Word. So Harry, if you install Microsoft Word on your laptop, you have no idea what are the different open source components and other constituents inside of Microsoft Word that Microsoft relies on for you, right? You expect them to handle it for you. With the new US regulations, government regulations, which are now being really globally supported and advocated for, the, the, the expectation is if I am running your software in my company, well, you owe it to me to tell me what are the things that you have put inside of your software. And the best analogy I will give you, Hari, is imagine going to a grocery store or buying food items that you have no idea what is the ingredients within it. You don't know how much saturated fat there is, how much cholesterol there is, how much protein, how much carbs, how much sugar. There was a time and place when we used to buy food without food labels until that kind of became the norm and got mandated. Effectively, the the same principle applies with software. How can you possibly blindly use software in your environment that you're running on your machines, your servers, pushing your critical application and data through that you don't understand what's within it. And so this is what's called software bill of materials. You'll hear a lot about it. This is the big industry push. But the world in the future is going to be where if a supplier of software and a consumer of software are transacting, not only will they transact and exchange the bits and the software and license, they will with the software go the software bill of materials, which basically tells you what all of those open source components and dependencies that are in your code, and what is the risks and what has been done to manage those risks and so on and so forth. And so with Endor Labs, we're really going to be helping position our customers, whether they're suppliers of software or they're end consumers of software, really bring in the technology and the automation to manage that foundational shift in the industry towards this notion of getting a better understanding of the composition of your software. Okay, two or three questions more around the entrepreneurial experience of building this company for you. You've just mentioned a new funding round coming out of stealth mode and so on. Can you talk about sort of the top two, three challenges that you had to overcome, whether it was on the technical front or in terms of educating your customers and giving them a sense of what you're doing? What were some of the biggest challenges? Yes, so we're thrilled to kind of have the backing of incredible venture investors and over 30 
CEOs and executives of amazing companies like Palo Alto Networks and Zoom, Snowflake, Zscaler, Rubrik, Databricks personally supporting us on this mission. And, you know, Harry, quite frankly, like it's pretty unheard of to see a $25 million seed round. But the reason that we, we, we're blessed to have the support and backing is because, you know, A, we are, you know, we're kind of three-time entrepreneurs, both myself and my co-founder, Dimitri. We've built multiple successful companies before. So there's a level of trust that this is a caliber of a team that's been there and done that. But more importantly, this is a problem at a scale and magnitude that hasn't been seen very often before. And so I think people are really betting that we're the team poised to solve this hard problem that really impacts both security and developer productivity. Um, so I would say, you know, as you kind of become a repeat entrepreneur, especially with success under your belt, like I'll be honest that fundraising does become somewhat simpler. But what I would say doesn't change. And actually, one thing that becomes harder and there's more pressure on you individually is the stakes become higher, the expectations the world has of what you would constitute a success the next time around is certainly higher. So people expect you to kind of continue raising the bar. But the thing that never changes is it's always a grind to really figure out how to build a meaningful product and get customers convinced and bought into that vision. So you could be a first-time founder or a 10-time founder. The real signal of when rubber meets the road is when you have customers writing checks. Um, that thing really never gets easier, no matter how many times you've done this before. All right. While we were just chatting, before we started recording, you mentioned uh, an India office. Maybe you could tell us about uh, your presence in India. What kind of work do you do in India? And maybe any plans uh, with the new funding, if there are expansion plans and so on. So Hari, actually for all my three startups, India has been paramount to success. Uh, and India has never been an afterthought. Uh, India has always been a kind of a prime site for software engineering and software development. You know, I'd say, I'd say traditionally, if you look back, a lot of people started moving to India for cost arbitrage reasons. And, you know, uh, part of that, people were moving what I'd call second tier, third tier work to India. And so a lot of support and maintenance started going to India back in the early days of kind of the IT offshoring. But what's been incredible to see is just how the talent pool in India has evolved to just incredible experience and expertise across any area of technology, whether it's AIML, it's natural language processing, it's hard computer science program analysis problems. And so, you know, today we, we officially opened our India operation in Bangalore uh, a couple of months ago. We'll have 10 engineers before the end of this calendar year, growing to about 40 people by end of next calendar year. Um, and for us, it is always about equal challenges equal caliber work between every geolocation that we have. We operate and we have engineers in the US, we have engineers in Europe, we have engineers in India. And for us, we never enter India for cost reasons. We enter it for just the incredible talent pool that there is. And I think quite frankly, it's a mistake for companies who today in this day and age, you know, think of India as a place to go ship um, second class, third class work, support, maintenance and other things. Because I think it's quite a shame if that's the focus and, and really the reason people are moving to India. But we're incredibly excited. We're hiring people, not just in Bangalore, we're hiring world-class engineers, you know, wherever we find the best talent in India. Obviously COVID has made us much more hybrid and remote friendly and, uh, you know, really excited to see 
how that evolves. Just to give you context, when I started Redlock in 2015, you know, we we started with five engineers in Hyderabad. We eventually moved them all to Bangalore, and you know, grew to about 40 before the acquisition. And three years after the acquisition, uh, and Palo Alto Networks, mind you, had no presence in India before this for R and D. But now there's over 400 people in India for Palo Alto Networks. So it's it's very rewarding to me to see the level of scale and impact we've had in the Indian market, bringing really hard technical problems to the uh, you know the technologists and engineers and seeing them successfully overcome them. Very nice. Uh, overall, how many people are there today in Indore? We're just coming up on about 35 people. Uh, we've just hit our one-year anniversary as a company. And you know we'll we'll uh, at the very least be kind of uh, doubling to tripling the company in the next twelve months. Okay, uh, over the next uh, twelve to eighteen months, what might be your top priorities? You know we're we're very confident and excited that we built incredible um, product. That's kind of what we call at least an MVP release of the product. We have a very um, ambitious roadmap to continue to deliver on the product capabilities. But like I've always said to you, you know, uh, a few times in this conversation, nothing is complete until you have lots and lots of customers appreciating that problem. So, you know, now that we have a technology we have built and validated and have good early feedback on, we're going to be looking to scale our go-to-market efforts and really take this to every possible customer that has this problem as quickly and efficiently as we can in the next uh, 12 to 24 months. Okay. Anything that you feel I might have missed that is worth highlighting? No, Hari, I think this has, been a, this has been a phenomenal conversation. Thank you so much for asking great questions. You know, at the end of the day, um, uh, the, the couple of things I will just highlight, right? Like soft, open source software is not going away. I think for all the reasons and citizen developers and low code, no code and efficiency and innovation, open source software is going to be the bedrock for all of that innovation. and. You know, we couldn't be more excited about the problems we're solving that are foundational to unblocking and unleashing that. And ultimately, you know, being able to do it with a team that is incredibly talented in both India as well as outside of India. Um, you know, we, we have significantly raised the technology bar. We're creating a new industry standard and just, just excited to kind of get more eyes on this technology. Excellent. What a lovely update on your work. Uh, thank you so much for making time for this. Definitely hope to keep the conversation going, sir. Yeah, thanks, Hari. Look forward to staying in touch and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll message you next time in Bangalore. Maybe we'll uh, do some of this in person. That's it for this conversation. You can find all our podcasts at ForbesIndia.com and on your favorite podcast apps. I'm Hari Arakali. Thank you for listening.